Hey, everybody, JV here. Thanks for listening, first of all. But secondly, this interview with Arlen Schumer has been divided into two episodes due to its length. We talk about the Twilight Zone and other pop culture issues. But again, this is part one of two. Be sure to listen to part two as well. The night may be long and the dark may be deep, but the answers are there to be found. Whether it's the normal, the abnormal, or the paranormal, you're in the right place. Let's go beyond reality. Welcome to the program. We have a terrific show for you tonight. In fact, this is going to be, I can already tell you, one of my favorites. I have never had the opportunity to interview Arlen Schumer until tonight. But the discussion is going to focus on the Twilight Zone series, the original Rod Serling series from 1959. It's going to talk about the silver age of comic books and comic book art. And it's going if we have time, because this is going to be one of those shows where we've got too much to talk about and not nearly enough time. In fact, I think this guest could be on the show for four nights in a row. We could do a whole week of Arlen Schumer because of the topics and how much we can get into about this stuff. And it's going to be not just interesting. It's going to be fun. It's going to be very, very much fun. So I'm looking forward to this a lot, as you can tell. Uh, and it's a great way to, to end the week because, well, it doesn't end the week per se, but it ends the week of our serious interview discussions because tomorrow night will be booze, brews, and bros. And you know, there's nothing serious about that show. We just have fun with that. Uh, and we don't talk about anything of consequence. We just talk about things that make us laugh or make us uh, make fun of each other. That's what, what that show is all about. And that's tomorrow night, of course. I mentioned this last night. If you're a Twitch subscriber, if you subscribe to our Twitch channel, you may have to go in there and renew. Because what happens is, particularly if you've used your uh, Prime, your Amazon Prime account and linked it so that it's a free subscription for you on our Twitch channel. Um, that's, you have to do that every month. Because what happens, it only lasts a month, and then the link goes away, and you just have to redo it. You know, Again, no fee or anything. It's just, just link it to your Amazon account. And if you're unsure how to do that, just when you go into the Twitch channel, just type exclamation point prime. No space. Just exclamation point prime. And it'll give you some instructions on how to do that. I know a bunch of uh, subscriptions have dropped off, and that's probably just because they need to be renewed. It's great to see so many people with us tonight. Uh, a lot of great uh, people we haven't seen in a while. So welcome back to the show. And I hope uh, hope, you, hope you're here uh, to stay for the night because we've got, as I said, a great discussion coming up. Be sure to subscribe to us on YouTube as well. That channel can be found the same way the Twitch channel or the Facebook page can be found. Just search for JV Johnson and it will come up. Our, our, uh, You've YouTube been listening to part one of two growing every of day. Love to see that. Welcome Schumer to all our new Twilight YouTube Zone viewers. and other pop Thank culture you so much. issues. Even, Please you know, listen, listen to part watching two. watching the live stream or your watching the programs this later This is JV on. here. This is part two you of doing two. That. Please share them with your friends. Interview with Arlen Every Schumer one of those shows has a light zone. And I know that you know people that have issues. similar interests to you. Share them. You've been listening to part two of two of my interview with Arlen Schumer. Be sure to listen to part one, regardless of how you listen to it. If you listen to it as a podcast, share it. If you watch it on Twitch, share it. If you watch it on YouTube, share it. It doesn't matter. Just get the word out there. If we can get some more people involved, love to do that. 
Did you know that online retailers like Amazon have constant deals that can save you money on the things you buy every day? It's no joke. Save 40%, 50%, even 80% on great products. And all you have to do is know about them. Noodle Shark is the way to be alerted when something good is coming your way. Noodle Shark is the social media page that lists great deals that not only save you money, but give you the deals before anyone else has them. All you have to do is find Noodle Shark on Facebook. Search it as The Noodle Shark. That's The Noodle Shark. Because you deserve to save too. Become a shark and save. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I am uh, really excited about this discussion tonight. As you can probably tell in my opening segment, there are so many things that we can talk about with tonight's guest, Arlen Schumer. Uh, We're going to touch on things like the Twilight Zone. We're going to touch on uh, comics and comic book art. We're going to touch on Bruce Springsteen. And as... Uh, Arlen and I just had a little conversation during the break. I don't think we're going to do be able to do much more than just scratch the surface on this because there's so much to talk about. Arlen, welcome to the program. It's great to have you here. Thanks for having me on, JV. You must have the best job in the world. I think you wow. really do. I think you really do. So to quote, so to quote, uh, uh, Marlon Brando in On the Waterfront. So how come I feel like a loser with a one-way ticket to Palookaville? <laughs> JV, you were my big brother. You should have looked out for me. I could have been a contender. But no, listen, you know, the grass is always greener. Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm living the dream, so to speak. But I'm, I'm truly blessed to be able to say that I've made my living as an artist, doing really what I want to do, getting paid for it. And that's really the American dream, JV, is to do what you want to do and basically make a living off of it. And I'm most proud in my life when people ask me, you know, what do you do or what are you? I love telling people I'm an artist. I think uh, I'll probably mess up the quote, but isn't, isn't it something like do what you love to do and you'll never work a day in your life? Yeah. And yet being an artist ain't exactly easy in this society. And this is pre-pandemic. Yeah, right. right. Um, but you know what I mean? It's like it's like the career route of any artist I know is a personal zigzag, whereas more traditional conservative careers have more of a straight line ladder type path that people kind of know what they have to do if they want to be that. But to be an artist in this society is to follow your own circuitous zigzag maze-like path that, you know, has a lot of tragedy along the way and personal sacrifice. Not everybody's cut out to be an artist. And yet, you know, what this pandemic has shown, I think the silver lining, JV, is that a lot of laymen are discovering by being forced to be at home Mm -hmm. and live the life of most independent artists where you have to get up, be your own boss, have a kind of self-discipline to do the work and create stuff that hopefully makes money. Well, laymen are discovering, because of this pandemic, that they can kind of do that. They're discovering creative sides of themselves they never knew they had. And, you know, um, this is sort of like 
out of every negative situation comes positives. And this is how at least I see it, that, listen, companies are discovering why we're spending all this money on office space when half of our workforce can work at home and actually be more productive. At least that's what the statistics show, I think. No, I think that's a really good point. And while there's certainly a lot to be concerned about and to be, you know, kind of wring our hands about, there are some good things. People are kind of rediscovering themselves and reinventing themselves. But that's my point. Yeah, yeah, out of you necessity. Know, one of my jobs as an artist, you talk about a job, one of my jobs is when I meet people that are not artists, my job, quote-unquote, is to try to you know, search their soul a little bit in the time that I have to try to unearth or bring out the potential artist in them. Because this society, the pressure to make a living, this society has deterred more artists from happening than they've created. Because how many parents don't want their kids to be artists because they don't think they'll make a living? Right, I mean, which we, is a stereotype right. that is actually like most stereotypes. They're based on truth. Yeah, I was going to say it is hard to make a living as an. That's what I'm saying. When I tell you I'm blessed that I've been able to make my living as an artist, that's what I mean by that. Is that being able to pay your rent and and have a nice life is very difficult for an artist. Yeah, the stereotype of the quote unquote starving artist is there for a reason. There are a lot of people that Hello? Yeah, try to do that. And Why it, do you think most artists like actors have day jobs and they wait tables or mm-hmm. they do other things? Or their significant others or spouses are the uh, Wall Street brokers that, you know, make the money to allow the other spouse to live the life of an artist. How you know did, what I mean? I do, I do. And how did you find yourself here? I mean, did you, uh, you must have loved uh, art, being an artist at an early age, I imagine, as a lot of people yes, do. three years old, I started drawing Diver Dan on television. And uh, and did you follow that? Was that a straight path for you, or was it a windy path before you ended up where you are now? Well, it's funny you say that, JV, because for me, it really was a straight path, because I knew from that early in age, I was going to be an artist. But you see, here's the thing. My mother was a widow. I was, my father died when I was four months old. And I have an older brother, Steve, a year and a half older. My mother raised the two of us herself. But here's the thing. If my father had lived, I might have had the more traditional American father who, when I said, Dad, I want to be an artist, he would have said, no son of mine right. is going to be an artist. Right. You know what I'm saying? I do. Now, I, do. I, come from, I come from a strong Jewish family. Jewish people have a long history of creating artists, obviously. Sure. You know, you know, so the point is, is, um, you know, that's, again, there are just as many, you know, to continue the, 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 the uh, analogy, there's just as many Jewish artists, and there are just as many Jews who could have been artists, but are now in more conservative, quote, money-making fields, because their parents didn't want them to be artists. You know, I, I that makes sense? it makes a lot of sense, and I and I can only compare it to. And correct me if I'm wrong here, but I grew up in an Italian family, and the patriarch of an Italian family has a lot of weight, and they influence a Hello. lot of th- a lot of things. And I, Italians I'm, and Jews, yeah. we share a lot in common. A big stress on family, That's education, right. and food. That's right. Yes, the food is good, but not necessarily in that order. <laughs> I think the food might come first. 
I think you're right there too. Very similar. I love hearing yeah. that. So let's um because I've already told Slick Eddie that he's going to have to reach out and schedule you back because I know we're not going to get to everything tonight. But I want. I'm telling you right now, we're only going to scratch the surface. Seventy five minutes is a bag of shells. The quote Jackie Gleason. And I want to make sure that tonight we cover as much as we can in depth uh, this Twilight right. Zone discussion because I think that I'm, I'm I'm just so anxious to have it, but not really any less anxious to have the uh, comic book discussion and the Bruce Springsteen discussion because I'm okay. I'm, I'm telling you right now, Twilight Zone is part one. Mm-hmm. Those others are part two and part three. Perfect. Especially because I got my Twilight Zone webinar coming up a week from tonight. Oh, okay, great. Well, let's start talking about the Twilight Zone because I, it just so happens, and this has nothing to do with the fact you're on the show tonight, but one of right. my one of my rituals when I go to bed at night is I throw Netflix on, and I happen to throw on one of two or three series. One of them is Star Trek, <laughs> the original Star Trek series. Me too. Um, I watch it every night on reruns. Yep, and another one is the original Twilight Zone series. And for the last few weeks, I've been watching a lot of the Twilight Zone series. It's tough for me because I I try to put these shows on to help me sleep because they kind of relax me. It's familiar, so it relaxes me. Um, But at the same time, the Twilight Zone engages me. So I actually find out, find I'm watching three or four episodes a night instead of going to sleep. Well, you know, it's like reading a good book before bed. You know, a good book, in a sense, will keep you up, but yet your body's getting drowsy. So I know what you mean. Television can be both meditative and vegetative, and then it could also make you sit up and obviously take notice. And, yeah, I mean, listen, I come from the extreme perspective that The Twilight Zone is the greatest television series of all time. It's what I would give to the aliens if they had room on their spaceship for one example of Earth television. I'm giving them about 25 half hours that, in my opinion, are like the best of the Twilight Zone, and that's what I'm giving the aliens. So I consider the Twilight Zone and Serling the father of American popular culture, which is a bold claim, but I can back it up. You um, have referred to the Twilight Zone, and in fact, uh, a book that you've had published, Visions uh, from the Twilight Zone, you've actually referred to it as works of art. Well, it's works of television art, meaning... What Serling did, in a nutshell, was bring serious science fiction, fantasy, and horror to television, when previously in Hollywood, in the media, it had always been, you know, like those 50s science fiction movies with the giant ants. They were jokes. Right. They were junk entertainment. But you see, the literary science fiction from the early 20th century you know, that was looked down upon by literary society. Science fiction wasn't real literature. All those ideas of time travel, other dimensions, and everything that we associate with the Twilight Zone, all, you know, certainly didn't invent any of those genres or those things. But what did he do? He was a television playwright, as they were called, a triple Emmy Award winner, the highest creative level writer of this new medium called television. But he won those Emmys from doing live television, which died out at the end of the 50s. And it, it was too expensive, and the ratings weren't there, so they moved to L.A. and did film television. And Serling had mastered live television, and now, with The Twilight Zone, he was going to do half-hour film television. Two-act plays filmed for television is really what those half-hours are. And 
that is a relatively new art form in, ni- in the fall of 1959. Half-hour anthology drama, not right. repeating characters. Right. Which, by the way, has never been done better than The Twilight Zone did it. Right. The okay. half-hour anthology drama was only done with The Twilight Zone, and it's been imitated. Like, Don't even get me started on all The Twilight Zone remakes, which I think have all pretty much sucked. The point is, is those Twilight Zones are a unique art form, two-act plays filmed for television. So what Serling did was he took these literary science fiction ideas and brought them to this new American pop cultural medium called television. And by doing that and treating science fiction, fantasy, and horror with a serious tone, which didn't sacrifice all of his social, societal, moral, and ethical messages, which is what good science fiction did. Great science fiction reflected modern reality. That's the whole point. That's right. So Sterling brought those ideas, the idea of the robot, the idea of other dimensions, all these things that were in this little clicky, cloistered world. I mean, even the writers themselves all lived in the same area in California, Bradbury and all those guys. They all hung out. They were a little click. And they were read by a cult. Serling, they viewed Serling, by the way, as a dilettante. That was cherry-picking their wares. Bradbury resented Serling, was envious and jealous. He sued Serling for plagiarism over one of the greatest time travel stories of all time on the Twilight Zone called Walking Distance. Bradbury thought Serling ripped that up. Well, don't get me started on that. (laughs) All of those science fiction writers. They saw Serling, and remember, Serling was also a star, visually. Good-looking, all those introductions on Twilight Zone, yeah. none of those writers were, were like that. So there was a lot of jealousy and envy. But you see, Serling was a master adapter. The art of adapting a short science fiction story into a half-hour Twilight Zone episode, Serling was a master of J.V. Some of the greatest Twilight Zone episodes were adaptations, not Serling originals. You know the famous Time Enough at Last with Burgess Meredith breaking glass? Yeah, that's right. Mm -hmm. Everybody's favorite episode? Sure. And why do people remember that? Because of the seemingly injustice done to the character that Meredith plays, Henry Bemis. Yep. We felt for the guy. He had a horrible wife. Remember? I do remember. ripped up his poetry book? I do remember. I mean, don't get me... I could do a whole webinar called Marriage in the Twilight Zone. You know, in the early 60s, when every other married uh, people on TV, everybody was happily married, Twilight Zone had episodes about divorce, about step-parents, about lousy marriages. In the early... This is part of Serling's visionary ahead of its time. Serling and company were laying out reality to an American television audience... That was being force-fed, the pre-Vietnam, pre-Kennedy assassination, the BS American dream that everything was perfect and cozy and everything was great. Did Serling recognize... How's that for a run-on sentence, uh, no, JV? It's, it's fantastic, and, and your answer prompts so many more questions. Um, right. Did, was Serling, uh, did Serling recognize the power? I mean, television was still a relatively new yes. phenomenon. Did he recognize the medium That's for what it was? That's why he stayed in television. Mm-hmm. You know, I make it a point in my webinar in the introduction to show that when television moved to the East Coast, uh, to the West Coast, 
and became film television. The other television playwrights that won Emmys, like Surly, guys like Reginald Rose, Patty Chayefsky, they ended up writing Oscar-winning screenplays in Hollywood. They thought staying in television in Los Angeles filmed on the cheap was day class A, was slumming. They're, they're going to write screenplays, darling. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Serling, unlike them, chose to stay in television. And there's this incredible interview with Mike Wallace, future 60 Minutes star, when he had his own interview show on CBS, same network as The Twilight Zone, 10 days before The Twilight Zone debuts on October 2nd of 59. Wallace at, tell, asks Serling point blank, and I show this clip on my webinar. He goes, Rob, now that you're going to be writing The Twilight Zone, does that mean you're not going to be writing anything important for television? Oh, wow. With that kind of condescension. Because, again, the critics who love the live 90-minute plays, but again, they didn't get the ratings and they were too expensive to produce. Why do you think they didn't do live television until Saturday Night Live, you know, 20 years later? Yeah. So the point is, is, is that the, the Reginald Rose and Chayefskys and the Mike Wallace's thought, well, now that you're going to be doing a half-hour film TV show, meaning... And it's going to be Twilight Zone, some kind of junk science fiction thing. Remember, science fiction was perceived as junk literature, you know, for juveniles. Now, just certain, like comic books. Yeah. Just, like, just like comic books, right. which is a whole, obviously. Uh, listen, I do, I do a webinar called Comics and the Twilight Zone because of their cross-pop cultural uh, um, influences on each other. But again, I, I digress. But... Uh, the point is, is Serling's answer to Wallace, JV, to that condescending question that I show the clip on my webinar next week, is this incredibly visionary statement in which Serling says, I choose to say in television because I believe the half-hour form can still tell stories of great depth and imagination. I mean, I'm paraphrasing, but you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. When you see this clip, it's like Serling saying, hey, everybody, I'm a visionary, and I'm going to lay out the future of television in my next statement. We are living in a golden age now of television where creators like Serling also run their TV shows. Serling was the first creative put in charge of a TV show. Now, that's that's a unique idea to people listening yes. now because now it's almost you know taken for granted, but it wasn't in Absolutely. the time of Serling. But that's why we're in a golden age where, you know, creative people control the show. Serling, why do you think Serling attracted guys like Bernard Herrmann, the famous soundtrack composer, did all of Hitchcock's greatest films? He did the debut soundtracks for The Twilight Zone. You know, I mentioned Walking Distance, the great time travel episode. Mm -hmm. The soundtrack by Bernard Herrmann is the greatest soundtrack ever in the history of soundtracks for that episode you listen to it and you come back and tell me jv if i've overhyped it the point is is how did a so-called day class a half hour film tv show get the likes of a bernard herman to do the music probably on the cheap because twilight zone was a half hour tv show that was always over budget my point is 
is that the minute they heard Rod Serling was in charge, you mean a creative person is in charge of a TV show? Why do you think all these who's who of Hollywood actors who would later become famous, like Robert Redford, Charles Bronson, Robert Duvall? I mean, it's a who's who of oh, Hollywood. It's, it's, it's a who's who for sure of, of Hollywood, for, of movie, of screen, quality, and TV. Yeah, mm-hmm. Meaning other great... Why, how do you think Serling was able to get that clique of, of California science fiction writers like Richard Matheson and Charles Beaumont and George Clayton Johnson. These are luminaries in the science fiction field. But why do you think a dilettante who they didn't believe was one of them, why do you think guys like Matheson and Beaumont and Johnson joined Serling? Because he was a creative writer in charge of a television show. And that's why, kind of like Orson Welles, attracted that great talent. Serling attracted great talent. And that's why the Twilight Zone, this gets back to your original point, J.D. I call the Twilight Zone art. Yeah, it's called television art. It's the half-hour anthology drama at its creative zenith. And it tackles all of the major issues of life and art and society and history. All the great issues of life and death, good and evil, man and God, man and society, men and women. I told you, I could do a whole webinar called Marriage in the Twilight Zone. I mean, because of it, it was an anthology, it was able to cover a spectrum of concerns that no other show before or since has ever been able to accomplish. They've been able to do pieces of it, like Roddenberry's Star Trek. Mm-hmm which he even said, without Serling's Twilight Zone, Star Trek would have been a glimmer in his eye when he delivered the eulogy at Serling's funeral in 75. History has obviously elevated Serling to the status that he deserves. Did he have that status going into this? I know he was successful. He was an Emmy winner. Uh, But did he have that kind of status going into the production of Twilight Zone? Well, going into it, yes. Remember, he had just won three Emmys. And Hollywood basically said, Rod, whatever you want to do next, you know? And he pulls out the Twilight Zone. And he goes, yeah, I'd love to do these science fiction stories. And they were like, what? You know, there's a whole backstory to how it even got on the air. And by the way, it was, it was um, uh, you know, yeah, it's just a great story of how it wound up on the air. But again, it was the clout of the three Emmys that gave him that creative freedom. So going into it, yeah. But the irony of it all, and the fact that we're talking about it 60 years later, is that Serling, who only wanted to be remembered as a writer, that's it. His heroes were Arthur Miller, you know, Death of a Salesman. Mm -hmm. Serling wanted to write the great American play. He wanted to write the great American novel, but he never did. I mean, this sounds harsh, but he died really, I think, thinking that he had failed as a writer. (laughs) Yeah, you know, when they asked him about the Twilight Zone, yeah, I wrote some good ones, we had some turkeys. (laughs) Here's the thing, Serling dies in 1975. You know why that's significant? Look what happens in pop culture in 75. Spielberg does Jaws. Right. Stephen King publishes Carrie, his first novel. Mm Mm-hmm. What I call Serling's metaphorical children, his metaphorical children, 
are the Stephen Kings and the Steven Spielbergs and the George Lucases and the David Lynches and their descendants, like J.J. Abrams and people like that, our modern American pop culture of science fiction, fantasy, and horror are all Serling's metaphorical children. They all were like young teenagers. You know, Stephen King wrote a book in 1983 called Dance Macabre, which is a nonfiction overview of the science fiction, fantasy, and horror fields. And he gives Twilight Zone a whole chapter. And in it, he basically says, Twilight Zone lit my generation's imaginations on fire mm-hmm. and made us, I mean, I'm, again, I'm paraphrasing, but basically he, he set us on the course to do what we ended up doing. And those were his metaphorical children, but they only came of age just as Serling dies, right. thinking that he basically failed. He did not get to see the impact that the Twilight Zone would have that we're talking about tonight, J.V. We have a qu- Had he lived only a handful of years longer, had he not smoked all those goddamn cigarettes which <laughs> killed him at the age of 50? Yeah. My point is, had he only lived a few more years, he would have seen the successes of Spielberg, Lucas, Stephen King, et al., David Lynch. He would have seen and experienced and been honored with the impact that the Twilight Zone had Guys like James Cameron, any creator of modern science fiction, fantasy, or horror of our American pop culture, comic book artists, visual people, <laughs> everybody was influenced by the Twilight Zone, no matter what age you came in on it, whether reruns or the <clears throat> excuse me, original broadcast. doesn't matter. Art stands the test of time. I just gave a uh, Zoom interview earlier today to a 20-something that loves the Twilight Zone. And I was blowing her mind with the stuff we were talking about. You know, there's something to be said when the title of your show, uh, The Twilight Zone, becomes um, part of the... Ahead of its time. You mean my webinar. It be, well, it becomes it becomes part of the lexicon. You know, if someone is talking about something that you know they don't understand or that's weird, or you know, they say, "Oh, that boy, that's the twi- that's in the twilight zone," or "I'm in the twilight exactly. zone," or the exactly the, even the theme song because it's so connected to the show. Of course, is, is of course. everybody knows Iconic. what it means when they hear that or somebody right. references it, and that is, that's very rare in our in, yes. in pop culture for it to be that present. And Twilight Zone is yes. You know, you know the, the character, the shadow from the pulps, you know? Mm-hmm. One of the expressions was he was everywhere yet nowhere at once. Mm-hmm. The, the pervasive influence of the Twilight Zone is so pervasive that it's almost invisible. That's how pervasive and penetrating it is. You know, when Vince Gilligan, the creator of Breaking Bad, another writer, showrunner, you know, a la Serling, Breaking Bad was one of the most honored TV shows, you know, along with The Sopranos, yeah, and, you right. know, Mad Men and shows like that, right? JV? Yeah, it, it's, it's one oh. of those that redefined the way we watch television now. Okay, so high praise. So when the show went off the air a couple of years ago, they asked Vince Gilligan in an interview, 
you know, congratulations, Breaking Bad just finished its, you know, run. It's one of the most honored shows of all time, blah, 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 blah. How do you want the show to be remembered, Vince? And you know what he answered? He goes, if in the future people will talk about Breaking Bad like the way we talk about the Twilight Zone, <laughs> I'll be a happy boy. It set the bar. Now, it's is, set, that pra- yeah. is that praise or is that praise? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it set the bar. It set the standard. And anybody who has a show that, that rises to that level uh, should be very, very pleased because the Twilight but, but, it's but, a gold standard. But, but that's right. But you see, Serling didn't live to know or see or sense any of that. Yeah. And in a way, that's, that's a kind of Twilight's own ironic ending all of its own. Right, right. Did um, You know, did- so... Yeah, so all I'm trying to do, as the son Serling never had, yeah. as the father I never had, is do the works that are, in a sense, honoring. If I had a father, I would imagine this is how a son would honor his father's great work with the works I've done on the Twilight Zone, including Our, the webinar next week. That's great, and we'll talk about that, too. But did contemporary yeah. audiences get, quote-unquote, get, the Twilight Zone, or did 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 we have to have to as a culture grow into it to understand it? You know, I would say the answer is all of the above because the Twilight Zone in its day was just like Star Trek. Years later, it always had low ratings. It was a critic's darling. Mm-hmm. Twilight Zone won Sterling, I think, two Emmys for writing. It won the director of photography, one for the cinematography. Um, but it always had low ratings around Robin is sponsored. They were going to cancel it after it's a uh, third season on the air. And it was canceled for six months. Then they tried bringing it back as a one hour version in the uh, spring of 63. And that didn't increase the ratings. And they gave it one more season as a half hour, which was the last season from 63 to 64. And then they canceled it. Star Trek only has a third season because people wrote in letters yeah. after they were canceled after the second season. Yeah. So look at how both of these shows have become the two greatest shows television ever produced. I mean, I yeah. ranked Star Trek right after Twilight Zone, along with, I think, Patrick McGowan's Prisoner. Uh, those are the three greatest shows of the 1960s. Yeah, and and one of the things that we're fortunate uh, to have is that in in with, with the limited number of seasons that Twilight Zone had, it's not quite as true for Star Trek. But it wasn't like television now, where well, actually now we see ten shows in a season. But traditionally, we've had like twenty to twenty six episodes make up the, the season. Se- yeah, the first season of Twilight Zone had thirty six half hours of original material. Yep. Now that would equate, you know, since most shows after see again. There were a lot of half-hour dramas back then. If you notice, on television, the last 50 years, all dramas are basically an hour. And then half-hours were all about sitcoms. Right. And that was true for decades. Now there are a lot of half-hour dramas, like Pamela Adlon's Better Things. You know, it's a, it's a dramedy. You know, there's comedy, but they're really... I don't know if you know that show. I, I just pulled that out of the... Uh, out of my head, but yeah, I don't you know, know that. that's just an example of quality half hour, again, dramedies, but you know, they're pretty serious shows, even though they've got some comedic relief. The point is, is after twilight zone, 
all dramas became an hour, and all the half hours were relegated to being sitcoms. You know, so um, I think I went off on a tangent there. What was your original question? Uh, we're just we're just talking about the fact that there were th- more than twenty six episodes in a season. So fortunately oh, for yeah. us, so, yeah. So okay, so now I know what it's gonna. The point is, is even if the thirty six half hours equate to only eighteen one hours, which in a typical TV season today, I think in a broadcast TV it was like twenty three hours in a season. But the point is, is to do 36 half hours back then of anthology drama, not, you know, the same actors every week. You know, you can do a quantity of shows when you know you've got the same characters, the same set. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. Sterling was anthology drama where every half hour was completely different. The quality of those first, that first season alone. If all Twilight Zone lasted was one season, JV, it would still be in the Television Hall of Fame just because of the episodes from that season. I think out of the 36 half hours, um, I think 18 of them are like, are like in my top you know, 50 Twilight Zone episodes. Right. Because there's so many um, 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 definitive Twilight Zone episodes from that first season alone. And... Um, Boy, again, I lost my train of thought. What were we talking about? We're talking about the you number know? of episodes. The point but... is that Sterling was able. You see, I'm very harsh when it comes to the Twilight Zone. Mm-hmm. Uh, 156 total episodes. I think half of them are dogs. Mm-hmm. Half of them. I think 16 of the 18 one-hours they produced are unwatchable. There's only two one of the one-hour episodes I think are watchable and worthy of the one-hour length. So I'm very harsh, but I'm... I'm that way with all the things that I love, whether it's Bruce Springsteen's music or whether it's comic book history. I'm just as critical as I am, um, you know, uh, you know, wax poetic ad nauseum about how much I love the material. I'm just as critical. So then you're left with 75 episodes. I think 50 of those are what I call good to great television. Now, that obviously covers a lot of ground, but then there, that leaves 25 half hours. Those are what I'm giving to the aliens if they have room on their spaceship for one example of an Earth television show. And my 25 are going to be different from your 25 and from another fan's 25. And that's what we're still debating on all these, you know, Internet chat groups about the Twilight Zone. We're still debating, you know, like everything else, you know, what belongs in the canon, what is considered a great episode. But, you know, one of my least favorite bottom 156 episodes is somebody else's favorite episode. Right. I I have a feeling the one I was watching last night, which is one of my favorites with Agnes Moorhead. Give me a clue. I I guarantee I can guess. I kind of just did by saying Agnes Moorhead. Enough said. The Invaders, written by Richard Matheson. Yes. Yes. Who, by the way, hated the little Michelin men. Uh, uh, Robot things, yeah. <laughs> hated them, and that's why a decade later he wrote this very cult TV episode, part of a movie of the week thing called Amelia with Karen Black, where she plays a New Yorker, you know, living alone in her apartment, and she gets chased around the apartment oh, the little, by this little, little doll thing, Zuni yeah. hunting fetish. Do you know the episode? Absolutely, I'm about? that's Trilogy of Terror. And, um, Trilogy of Terror. Yeah, mm-hmm. that was Richard Matheson rewriting 
the Invaders episode oh, because wow. he hated the Little Michelin Men. Oh, wow. You like that little I, bit of trivia? I love that. I had no idea. I'm a, I'm a fan of Trilogy of Terror and that that segment in particular. Um, and and, and in the Invaders. By the way, speaking of living in in social uh, isolation and distancing, right? Agnes Moorhead living in that barn. Yeah, she. I, right? I mean, I'm watching her performance in that last night, and I've seen it a hundred times. But I was watching it a little more critically last night. And I and great I, soundtrack by Jerry Goldsmith, another yep. future. Uh, Oscar-winning Hollywood composer, yes. And something struck me last night as I was watching it that hadn't struck me in the 99 other times I'd watched it is that she doesn't what? utter a word of dialogue because if she had... She grunts a lot. Yes, grunts, grunts and screams. And, but if she had spoken English, if she had, it, it would have ruined the illusion. It would have... Exactly. It, okay. Right? So now, are you sitting down, JV, because I'm about to blow your mind? I am. Okay. I interviewed Douglas Hayes, the director of that episode and he directed i the beholder the howling man a lot of great episodes he's one of the great twilight zone directors mm -hmm. and when i did my coffee table art book visions from twilight zone which was published 30 years ago wow. this year wow and in the late 80s i went out to la and i interviewed buck houghton the original producer yep. and douglas hayes and, and george clemens director of photography when I was describing why I love the invaders to Douglas Hayes in his home in Hollywood, I said, you know, Agnes Moorhead, you know, she acts the scene almost like a mime, mm -hmm. you know, because she can't use dialogue. It's all in her body, in her body language. And he looks at me, he goes, Arlen, did you know that she was actually trained by the famous mime, Marcel Marceau. No way. <laughs> yes way. Okay. Did I live up to my hype when I said, are you sitting down? You I'm did. about to blow your mind. Wow. Did wow. I just blow your mind? You did. Absolutely did. At your cervix. Wow. That's amazing. And that episode is so good. And I, you know, I get the, why there might've been some disappointment in the little, they look like uh, almost Will Robinson. I call them little Michelin men. Yeah, they kind of have that look. But... And yet, and yet, when I do my multimedia lecture about the Twilight Zone, which I'll be doing on October second mm -hmm. uh, in two months, the sixty-first anniversary of the show, it'll be a webinar. I show that at the time NASA had experimental. You know, they were trying all different kind of spacesuits for the Gemini program. Mm -hmm. And one of the suits looks a, a lot like the Michelin men. They're very, you know, uh, trapezoidal. You know what I mean? Right. They don't conform to the human body shape. So in a way, the guys who designed it for the Twilight Zone weren't that far off from reality. But Matheson hated them. Well, um, if, if they gave out Academy Awards for television performances, Agnes Moorhead should have gotten one for that because her performance Absolutely. is phenomenal. Now, you want to hear, again, in my lecture, when I show how influential The Twilight Zone was on, you know, movies and television and, and art that followed it, the scene at the end where she finally, you know, beats the crap out of the spaceship with her axe. Yep, yep. And it's left on the roof as a as a burned out husk. Mm -hmm. The juxtaposition of this very modern, futuristic spaceship with this old fashioned American barn 
you know, from the 19th century, mm-hmm. would later be on the widescreen in 1968, seven years later, in perhaps, and I believe it's the greatest movie ever made. I'm going to say, I'm going to tell you what I think it is before you tell me what the movie is. There's only one movie in 1968 that can arguably be called, and even though it's never been ranked number one, I maintain Citizen Kane is the greatest black and white film of all time. Yep. And the greatest full-color film is this film in 1968 that had an exact parallel to this juxtaposition of futuristic technology with this anachronistic, um, you know, something from the past. Mm-hmm. What movie is that? Did Rod Serling have something to do with this film? I know what film you're thinking of, but you're totally wrong. Oh, that's not the one. Okay. Um, then the only By other... By the way, Planet of the Apes is one of the great <laughs> films of 1968. Yeah. And it's one of the greatest science fiction movies of all time. Of all time. And it's got, along with Citizen Kane's Rosebud, it's maybe the second greatest movie ending of all time. That's right. But so, it is not greater than the other film so from 1968. Stanley Kubrick? Hello? Yeah. What scene am I talking about? Uh, you're talking, are you talking about the opening scene? What scene has the juxtaposition of futuristic technology with an anachronistic, old-fashioned... Um, what memorable scene would I compare to the spaceship on the roof? Is, is it the prehistoric scene? No. Oh, it's boy. Obviously, the monolith, when it appears to the apes, yeah, yeah, right. that's that. You know, is a legitimate answer, but it's not the answer I'm looking for. Okay, of course we're talking about we're, we're talking about after, 2001. I just want my audience want the audience to know we're talking about 2001: A Space Odyssey. Just so people are, right. are with us here. Remember the very end after he goes through the whole Stargate trippy sequence. Mm-hmm. Where does he wind up? He's in that little space pod, remember? Yep, yep, yep. I'm trying. Uh, yeah. I, Where does it? Okay. It's been a while. Seen, uh, it's been a while. Rewatch for me. 2001 if you haven't seen it in a while. I'm going to have to. Okay. He winds up in this Baroque, anachronistic Victorian, uh, like, like, like mansion interior. Wow. And then he comes out of the, the pod. And then he sees himself as a man having dinner. You don't remember the final I don't remember. This is embarrassing. I don't. I, I'm really having drawing blanks okay. on okay. that. Guess it's been a while. Homework is, yeah, David. I know what it is. Yeah. 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 And by the way, this is really difficult assignment. Watch the greatest movie ever made. <laughs> I, know, I know, right? <laughs> the point is, is one of the startling scenes that Kubrick became famous for was this harsh juxtaposition of this futuristic circular space pod in the middle of a Baroque Victorian, I mean, I'm, I don't even know these architectural terms I'm talking about, but this very anachronistic 19th century European interior after you've just been through this outer space sequence. Right. That is the Twilight Zone juxtaposition seven years earlier. 
of the spaceship on the barn roof. Wow. Um, just reminding the audience. Boy, I, I yeah. hope that was worth it. That was a long way around to make that point. I hope the audience appreciated that. No, it was fantastic because you're remi- not only reminding, making some really interesting connections for us, but you're reminding us of some great art from 1968. Absolutely. I mean, there's some fascinating stuff. And, and I, I knew it was either going to be Planet of the Apes or 2001. I just wasn't sure which one we were going to go with. Um, but I... I want to remind the audience, we're talking with Arlen Schumer tonight, and his website is his name. Very easy to find, and a lot of great information about his work there, including his... As long as you spell Schumer correct, I mean, Arlen is A-R-L-E-N, but Schumer is like Chuck Schumer, Amy Schumer. It's S-C-H-U-M-E-R. And I'm like the third unknown Schumer, you know? <laughs> yes. Everybody knows Chuck. And by the way, Chuck and Amy, I think, found out they were actually related. Oh, really? Oh, that's interesting. And I think, listen... I might be related to them because Schumer is not that common of a Jewish surname. It's not like Goldstein or, or you know what I mean, Cohen. Right. It's it's fairly, um, um, I would say, a, a like I said, it's not a familiar name. So since nobody really kept old records back in, you know, we all come from most East Coast Jews all come from that Eastern European Russian bouillon base mm-hmm. that got carved up after, you know, World War One. My father's from somewhere in Austria-Hungary, and my grandmother came from the Ukraine, I think. So, um, you know, we might be related. Let's talk about some Boy, more. Boy, tough crowd. You yeah. know what I mean by tough crowd? <laughs> yeah. That's a tough crowd. Let's talk about some more of these the Ep- Twilight Zone episodes that might make that 25 uh, yes. t- list that we were talking about. I mean, there's some obvious ones that probably make... Just about everybody's list. And uh, to serve man... Uh-huh. Well, I... Listen. Yeah. It used to be a clear consensus, but in the age of the internet, man, you know, there's... I would say there's a handful of episodes, one handful, that are roughly a consensus, top five. But then, man, it's the Wild West. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. One of my favorite episodes is somebody's worse than right. vice versa. Right. Well, um... So I'm curious to hear since I've been hearing this all my life, really, mm-hmm. what you think are the consensus great episodes? Well, I think, I think we've touched on a couple of them already tonight. We've, we've talked, right. we, you know, we've talked about the invaders. We've, we right. talked about, um, uh, remind me of, of, uh, the Burgess Meredith, the, the title of that time episode. enough at last. Yeah. We talked about, did we talk about eye beholder, the pig faces? Right. Did we mentioned that. Yeah. Uh, what was the title of that one? Eye of the beholder. Eye of the beholder. That's right. Where, where she's, uh, she's, uh, has a bandages on her head and right. And they're right. working. Yeah. Um, there's obviously a, to serve man, I think probably makes most people's top. Uh, Cause now, that, that whole, that's a perfect example, JB to serve man, mm-hmm. to serve man is a dark horse that never used to be in the running. Really? The best episode. But in the age of the internet that has climbed and leapfrogged over what used to rank. It was it used to be eye of the beholder time enough at last. But out of left field comes, now, I don't have a problem with the serve man per se. I consider it a punchline episode. Meaning, yeah, it is. It is. Yeah, every Twilight episode has more. Lo- we're, get- we're breaking up a little bit on us, Arlen. I'm sorry. Some of them were more, um, you know, subtle. Some were more leaden. Mm-hmm. And I believe to serve man, it all comes down yes. to what I call a punchline. Yes. 
get it? I mean, it's a pun. Right, right. And yet, and yet it's become, like I said, sometimes it ranks number one in, in Internet polls I've seen. Yeah, and it is because it is, because that punchline is easily repeated, easily remembered, and used in... But to me, it doesn't make it a great Twilight Zone episode. It's not even in... You know when I said uh, there's 50 yep. to great episodes? Yep. I don't even know if it's in that 50. Really? You don't have it in that 50. Okay. How about... How this about, is my point. How about William Shatner's... And I have one of my, maybe, right on the edge of 25, which is an episode called 22 which has the famous refrain, room for one more, honey. You know mm-hmm, that episode? Mm-hmm, yep. Mm-hmm. Okay. What if I told you some Twilight Zone aficionados hate it? Really? Hate. I, when I say hate, it's a strong <laughs> word. It is a strong word. I mean, word. they hate it. Wow. I think it's one of the, 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 the dream sequence alone. Shot in video, by the way. It was one of the second season episodes they shot six episodes on videotape yeah to save money Mm -hmm. and most of them look cheap and shoddy yep except for 22 the way the director can get that level of suspense the visceral feeling if you know that episode when she wakes up in the hospital bed Mm -hmm. and follows the nurse down into the morgue and then is confronted by this nurse who looks like the angel of death She's got this Mona Lisa. She's beautiful, but she's horrible at the same time. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Yep. Mm-hmm. And that also is an example of why Twilight Zone is this perfect show because it's all in the casting. I mean, that that actress that plays the woman that goes room for one more. And again, if you saw this as a kid, that sequence blew your mind. And it was shot pretty much, you know, like on video, not not in film, mm-hmm. which is more difficult to maintain that visceral suspense. But they did it. And yet, other Twilight Zone aficionados, they, oh, the actress who plays the woman is too shrill, and oh, you know, everybody has their opinion, They're, you know, on the internet, you know that. Yeah. So, but I'm just telling you, it's it's in my it's right on the edge of the top twenty five, just because just, of the greatness of that sequence. Mm-hmm. That alone is in the Hall of Fame. Just you follow me. I do, and just an aside here because you kind of touched on it earlier, but the parade of acting talent that many who eventually became household yep. names. Yeah. Um, on the Twilight Zone, was that just a coincidence because they happened to be the working actors of Hollywood of the day, or was there something more methodical or by design going on there? Well, again, I think the answer is both. Remember what I said. Once the word got out that Rod Serling had his own show, mm-hmm. all the top actors and writers and directors wanted to work with him, and people like Bernard Herman. So, you know, the best actors of the time, plus... Sterling gave breaks to people like Robert Redford in the late 50s on yeah. live things. And Redford remembered that and came back, even though he was still relatively unknown when he did The Twilight Zone. I think it was a year before he broke big with uh, Barefoot in the Park. I think that came out in 62. And his great Twilight Zone episode was in 61, I believe. Um, but Sterling, by being a great creative, attracted great creative talent, 
and that included the actors and actresses of his time. And many of them would go on to basically justify this very idea that Serling always attracted top talent, is that so many of these actors and actresses became not only great movie stars, some of them, but great television stars of shows that are more defining of who they are than their appearance on The Twilight Zone. And yet, if it wasn't for their appearance on Twilight Zone, they w- would not have gotten those gigs. You know, Shatner, right, right. you know, is in two great Twilight Zone episodes. Yep. And then there's Star Trek. Right. But even people like Carol Burnett, you know, were on The Twilight Zone. I mean, again, the level of talent, it's a who's who of Hollywood. There's a Western. I, I, I don't like the Western genre except for the movie Shane. I'm a superhero guy. I like futuristic stuff. Westerns never appealed to me as a kid, mm-hmm. except Shane. I make, a, I make an asterisk. I think that's the greatest Western of all time, but that's a whole other story. The point is, is Sterling did a bunch of Twilight episodes that dealt with Westerns mm-hmm. because that was the most dominant genre on television at the time. Right. When I tell you, J.V., every other show back in the early 60s was a Western, I'm not exaggerating. I mean every other show was a Western. So imagine these metaphysical episodes about these deep philosophical issues are being dropped in the middle of this morass of, of, of cookie-cutter Westerns. You know that famous line by the FCC chairman Newton Minow that television is a vast wasteland? Mm-hmm. You know that famous line? Yep. He said that in 1961. Most people forget there's the rest of the sentence where he said, except for shows like The Twilight Zone. <laughs> you like that story? I, I love that. Yes, and I and didn't know that. the point is, is, imagine these episodes, like Five Characters in Search of an Exit, one of my favorites, which is what I show to a lot of young newbies who don't know The Twilight Zone. Mm-hmm. Why do I show that? To me, in 25 minutes, they discuss every theory of, 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 of reality. Right. Of, uh, you know, what is reality? Are we living in a dream? You know, mer- you know, row, row, row your boat. Life is but a dream. All of these ideas get discussed by five people stuck in a circular white conundrum, literally. And it's one of the episodes I show next week in my webinar to show how it dealt with issues of solitude and loneliness and isolation that we're dealing, we're all trapped in our little white circular conundrums right now, right? Yeah. Yes, we are. And in 25 minutes, Serling gets these characters to debate the very nature of what is existence. And this is happening in 25 minutes in the middle of a million Westerns in 1961. You had what? Gunsmoke and the Rifleman and... And a million others and a million that others. have disappeared into the dustbin of TV history right. because they were cookie-cutter. Right. Westerns were the most popular genre on television in the 50s into the early 60s. And in the middle of that was the Twilight Zone. So they must have come across like transmissions from another planet. I mean, imagine right. the December, I think it was aired on the 22nd of December, 1961. Imagine this episode, five characters, being broadcast to a 1961 American audience where every other show is a Western. I mean, 
it boggles your mind, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, it really does. And that was part of my my comment and question about did 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 American culture, did our pop culture, have to grow into the Twilight Zone? Um, and, and and the answer is yes, yeah. it had to. Yeah, because the the ratings were low. People were not watching it, but the critics loved it. It won Emmys, but just like Star Trek, great. After the Twilight Zone, again, The Prisoner and Star Trek, greatest TV shows of the 60s. Mm-hmm. And they would not have existed without The Twilight Zone. Five characters, by the way, is pretty much the concept of The Prisoner. Yeah. yeah. A you... guy is trapped, and his conundrum is he's trapped on his island, and he can't get off, remember? Yeah. I don't know that well, but I do remember that. But, you know, go. it, it only lasts 17. It was a... It was a forerunner of our the golden age that we're in now. Mm-hmm. There were only 17 one-hour episodes, and if you've never seen it, JB, it's going to blow your mind, too. I keep saying the phrase, blow your mind, Yeah. but I only hype things when I know the material I'm hyping can live up to the hype. Right. Well, tonight has already changed my life, so um, getting back to some of these episodes. Where do you get my bill? <laughs> yeah. You think this is free, changing your life? Yeah. It's worth every penny and more. You've been listening to part one of two of my interview with Arlen Schumer about the Twilight Zone and other pop culture issues. Please listen to part two. Beyond Reality Paranormal is hosted by J.V. Johnson and produced by Orion Palmer and Slick Eddie Edwards. Like us on Facebook and subscribe to our YouTube channel. Please consider supporting the program either through your podcast platform, click on the link in the description, or on Patreon at Joha Productions. If you'd like to be a guest on Beyond Reality Paranormal or you have a recommendation for a guest, contact our producer, Slick Eddie Edwards. Eddie is spelled with a Y at slickeddieedwards at gmail.com.